Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's said that Argentina's embattled military dictatorship was on its last legs in 1982. Unpopular and in need of a public win, it sought to secure a lifeline with an invasion of the British Falkland Islands. The move paid off, initially at least. With a seemingly quick victory, the Argentine military leader Galtieri proclaimed, if they want to come, let them come, we will give them a battle. But as the British task force did sail across the high seas to liberate the Falklanders, the mood began to change. This is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and to tell us all about this period, we have Roberto Herscher on the podcast. Like so many, Roberto was conscripted into the Argentine military. He was a very young man. He explains to us how the Argentine invasion unfolded, what it was like serving aboard the smallest of the local vessels requisitioned by the Argentine military, that is, the Penelope, and how this vessel managed to undertake a daring and risky journey through the British naval blockade to deliver much-needed helicopter fuel to the island's capital. Most importantly, however, Roberto reveals the legacies of the war in Argentina and the lifelong friends he has made with native Falklanders since the end of the conflict. Please also note that this discussion, this podcast, contains references to death by suicide, which some listeners may find upsetting. Hi, Roberto. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm less fine than when we arranged this meeting because a war has just erupted in Europe. And talking about war, I think it has a different feel, a different tinge when there are news of invasion, air raids, attacks in the news right now. Yes, it's a strange time to be talking about a historic conflict that is the Falklands-Malvinas War 40 years ago at a time when war has broken out in Europe. But, you know, maybe this will help us give some historic context to what it's like to serve in war and, of course, how brutal warfare can be. Now, I realise that I've called this the Falklands-Malvinas War, as you yourself are a veteran of this conflict from the Argentinian side. Is that the way that we should refer to it? What would you prefer? What is the best way to talk about this war? Because the names of the islands are so incredibly contentious. Yes, if you call them one way, you are recognizing not only the property or who is the legitimate owner of the islands, but a line of history into it. I mean, I don't know how many people in Britain know that the way we Argentines have been told, in our case, Malvinas is part of our curriculum in primary school and high school, and we sing the Malvinas anthem. And the name comes from the name that the people whom we recognize as discoverers of the islands, the French, call them because they came from the port of Saint-Malo. And they are Malouines from Saint-Malo. And that is where Malvinas comes from. Whereas the way in which the British and the islanders themselves tell the story comes from the British first seeing the... This is all very arcane and strange, but there are people, and I am in contact with scholars and historians in Argentina whose only purpose is to 
look for ancient maps and documents to demonstrate that this was part of the Spanish Empire of the Treaty of Tordesillas, which is quite a strange way of stressing your legitimacy because it was the moment in which the Pope divided the new world into the Portuguese and the Spanish. And it was as colonial as you can get for a country like mine, which is fighting against colonialism. But yes, there's a lot of feeling into it. There are many towns, streets, companies called Malvinas Argentinas. Malvinas Argentinas is a bus stop in Buenos Aires. It's a town in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And I think that almost every province in Argentina has a Malvinas Argentinas town or neighborhood. So the silhouette of the islands and the word Malvinas is very much one of the things that makes, of the very few things that are undisputable in my country, things that everybody agrees on. is like the legitimacy of the queen, I suppose, to most Britons. I mean, I suppose there might be Republicans, but yeah, especially in nasty political contests where everything is in dispute and everybody thinks that the other side, they are criminals and crooks, that the Malvinas are, by right, Argentine is probably the only thing that everybody believes, which is, in a way, something difficult for debating. The war, the suffering of the war, and the whole 200 years of history of this. It's fascinating to hear about how the Falklands Malvinas are framed in Argentina. And of course, you would have been taught these very same things at school. So when it came to you being called up for the war itself, is this something that framed your own personal understandings of the islands, of the fight that lay ahead of you? For me and for most of my comrades, I mean, you must understand that very different from the way in which the British land and naval and, of course, air forces that went to the war were composed. Most of us were civilians forcibly conscripted into either the army, the navy, or the air force. There is a lottery in which when you turn 18 years old, and that started in 1912, and it only ended in the 90s, when it made no sense anymore economically and in the way in which the military operate at the end of the 20th century. But the experience of military service was something that every male for generations in Argentina had to pass. I mean, that was kind of a rite of passage. We finished high school and then we went into the military service. So for one whole year, of course, I had absolutely no idea that I would be sent to a war, the lottery gave me a number which sent me to the Navy. It was pure luck. And because I had gone to a Scottish school, a school founded by the Scots, St. John's School for Boys, I did the whole Argentine education, plus I was taught English. I was told by the Falkland Islanders that they understood me better than the young British soldiers that retook the islands, because I suppose I was taught English by these Victorian teachers who talked the way they used to in Britain, that type of English. I then studied in the United States and I worked for American media. For a time, I was a contributing writer for the New York Times, I studied at the University of Columbia, New York, but I never adopted the American accent. This is the way I was taught to speak at school. And this is also what probably makes me and a few, I would say, upper high class soldiers in the Argentine forces that took the Malvinas different. And I was used as a translator in the war. So after one year of military service, then I was picked up by the commander of what we call the recovery and what the British call the invasion <laughs> of the Malvinas, Admiral Busser, because he knew I spoke English. So during the first days of the conflict, I was not sent and I didn't feel, and we 
as a group didn't feel we were going to a war. We thought maybe like many people until last week or until the last few days, as we are talking now, in Ukraine, it's different when there was a war going on and you're sent there. The five, ten years of war in Vietnam and you go to the war. We went and we thought, and I think most of us that are not warmongers hoped that there would be no war, that there would be some kind of peaceful solution. So first I went into the Navy as I was leaving, I was finishing my period when I was sent to the islands, not to the war yet. And so after almost a month, we really, it was the 1st of May, the day of the first raid in which we had to go into the holes we had dug. And we heard that the cruiser General Belgrano was sunk. Then is when to the place we had gone, it suddenly got transformed into a war zone and we were in a war. So there were different moments in that and different stages of fear, of hope, and in some of us of wanting to fight and get into battle, not me. And so it's astonishing to think, but did you have no specific training before the invasion? Was there nothing added on in terms of tactics and strategies to fight the British or fight this type of island warfare? Or was this very much kept on the down low? And so it became somewhat of a surprise that there was going to be this conflict that you were embroiled in. It was a complete surprise, at least to me. I mean, I was not in the know of anything. On April the 2nd, 1982, at six in the morning, I was doing my military service at the Navy headquarters in the downtown Buenos Aires. And we lived in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And so about one day a week, I was on duty the whole night. But the rest of the time, it was like a job. So I went to the train station at six in the morning and the newspapers announced that they had planned in the same building where I was doing my military service. And of course, nobody had told me. And it was the people with whom I talked, the non-commissioned officers, the bureaucrats of the Navy. What I remember, this is 40 years ago, is that we didn't know any more than anybody else. But the things started to change when that happened. And I started to feel that we as a group, and especially I, could be sent to the island. There was even a moment in which friends of my parents told them, you know, there is a way to go through the delta of the Paraná River into Uruguay, and then to Brazil and flee. It's like there is a wonderful, wonderful book. I think the best war book that I know by Tim O'Brien, the things they carried about the Vietnam War where he served. And he also thinks about going, like many United States young people of the 60s, to go into Canada through a river, a lake, and then escape, go to another country. And I didn't do that. And when finally I was called some days after, there is a word in Spanish, the take over or the la toma, which allows us, as we were talking about the words Malvinas and Falklands, not to use invasion or recovery, which are very charged words. We can say take over. You do agree that it's more neutral. I think it's more neutral than occupation or invasion or liberation or recovery. So I think we can most definitely agree on that. The thing that interests me about your story there, Roberto, is that one of the justifications for the takeover was that it would be a, um, a publicly quite popular thing for the military junta who were potentially running low on public support. But from what you're saying, there was discussions of potentially trying to get away, to remove yourself from being embroiled in this military takeover. Again, we'll say, we'll say those words. So was there an air of public disgruntlement and potentially it wasn't as popular as history has made it out to be? 
No, 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 no. I'm now talking about my own feelings, personal. I am, I would say, a particularly non-nationalistic person. A few years ago, I was trying to explain that, and I think it applies to most countries. Some people feel that the place where they were was sheer luck that they were born is a noun to them. You are a Brit. You are French. You are German. You are Russian. You are Argentine. For me, it's not a noun. It's an adjective. And that is how I see it. I'm from nowhere else. And I feel when I eat, when I sink my fork into a tender piece of bloody beef de chorizo, Argentine way, that's my country and my family and my friends and the trees around my parents' house. But that in no way makes me want to make war to anybody else or think that because I was born there, we are better than anybody else. And finally, in a way, really, there was a part of me that thought that this was a national cause and that reluctantly I wouldn't flee. I wouldn't be a coward. That is what makes it for me very, very interesting, this wonderful book by this American United States great novelist, Tim O'Brien, he finally decides not to go to Canada, to go to Vietnam, because in the town of his parents, his parents would become pariahs if they were the parents of somebody who would escape the hour of need of Uncle Sam or the fatherland. So in a way, I am completely against the junta, the dictatorship, I later found out not only that the military had committed atrocious crimes, but personally, when the trial started, many of the people who had power over my life or death had been torturers in 1976, 77, 78, the hardest years of repression at the beginning of the military dictatorship. And this is something that a few of the people I met in the islands knew. Because I was a translator, I was probably of the very few Argentine conscripts who talked a lot with the islanders, who could see their point of view about the war and about Argentina, where many had friends and shared history and many words in the jargon of the islands are, for example, instead of saying the countryside or a farm, they say camp, which comes from campo, and they have gauchos in their language. It's like some places in the south of the United States where they mix Mexican Spanish with English. And in the years before the internet, the dictatorship was able to, especially for children, we didn't know what was going on. And strangely enough, when they said, we don't want to be Argentine, but we especially don't want to be ruled by your military commanders. And this is what they are like. And it was a couple of Falkland Islanders who knew very well what was going on in my country. And so for me, it was also a discovery to talk to them person to person, not as representatives of enemy countries. And to hear that slightly different outsider perspective of the regime that had a rule over you, over your family, and over your life. And you were working as a translator, but am I right in thinking that you were stationed on quite a historic, famous little ship now from the conflict, which is the Penelope? Could you tell us a little bit about your time on the Penelope? After the attack and the sinking of the Belgrano, which is also a ship with a wonderful history. It is like a lot of the Argentine and the Latin American fleets used like a used car you bought. This ship had survived Pearl Harbor. It was built in 1938. The British ships were very modern and our flagship was a survivor of Pearl Harbor. And when they sunk that, they knew that there was an exclusion zone and the rest of the ships and the Navy would be sunk if they continued. So they went back to the port, to the same port where I was, where I had done my instruction a year before. 
And so they started looking for the small ships belonging to the islanders whom we would take and use. And the smallest and least military of all of them was this Penelope. It was a catch, a wooden catch built in the port of Busum next to Hamburg in Germany in 1927 by a German explorer, Gunther Pluschow. So all this wonderful story about Gunther Pluschow and the Feuerland, I learned in 2006, I had no idea where this little boat, it is 16 meters long, built in German oak. I mean, they later placed an engine into it, but it is sailing boat. So once they decided that to move around the islands, because before the war, there were almost no roads. And the terrain was very rough and there were two islands and smaller little islands where the troops were gathered. So we flew by helicopter to a little island, Speedwell, in the south. And so I was the only civilian conscript. There were four young non-commissioned officers, I would say. It's a corporal in the army, but you know, the my generation knows in Spanish all the ranks in the armed forces. I suppose young people now don't. There was one Navy lieutenant who was our captain. One person who was about 40, which he was incredibly older to us, who was the older non-commissioned officer and four young boys my age. And they were all one officer and the other non-commissioned officers and me. So we took the Penelope. The boat had been sold by Gunter Plucho to a trader and he had sheep in Argentine Patagonia and in the, in the Falklands. And he took it to the Falklands and the ship had never left the islands for 80 years. And so that is the story of the Penelope that I discovered 24 years later when I wrote my book, The Voyages of the Penelope. So as naval personnel, Roberto, you were helicoptered in and you requisitioned the ship. Yes. There were five island, uh, there was the crew it had, and the captain and the guy in charge of the engine were left on board to show the Argentine crew how it worked. And I had to translate with a language that I did not possess. They both knew the words in their own languages, and I had to, I mean, it's like translating something from a world that is completely foreign to you. And one of the people that helped me not become mad or angry, it's strange because I felt that the older guy in our group, we called him Uncle, Uncle Luna, he was like an old master of life and tranquility to me. And the other one was Finley Ferguson, the captain of the Penelope. The first owner had changed the name Feuerland for Penelope, which was the name of his daughter, John Hamilton. This is all the story of the ship in 1929. So the name was changed and it belonged to the Falkland Island Company. And it was commanded by Captain Finley Ferguson, who was a wonderful sea wolf and a great person. I think I was very lucky to go into a war with humane, good people first into that conflict on both sides. And I was able to do something that almost all of the Argentine veterans of the war you can talk to, their experiences is radically different from mine. They were in a hole in the mountains, and the only contact they had with somebody not from their side was these Marines or the Gorkas firing at them. So those nights talking with Finley Ferguson at the steer of the Penelope and trying to look to see if there was light, if there was an attack, if the Sea Harriers were flying over, which twice they did, and they attacked us. It was a transforming experience. I I really don't know who would be talking to you now if I had not gone through that experience when I was 19 years old. 
And when you were on that boat, Roberto, what was its primary purpose? Was it logistics and resupply? Was that the point of using the small ship that had a captain that knew the territory to take supplies at different points due to the fact that there wasn't that transport infrastructure on the island itself? The mission changed continually. One day we had to take troops to a, to an observation point. Another time we had to take food there was a merchant ship that was sinking and we had to go on it and try to get as many things from it as possible. Apart from food, I managed to get some books from people who had left them behind. I'm a reader. And in those nights, if I managed to find the owners, I would give them back. There's one book I took from the house in which we were stationed in, in Port Stanley, which is The Heart of the Matter by Graham Greene. And the other book is by somebody I had read when I was a teenager, which is Hermann Hesse. So we had about four hours to sleep and I spent half that time reading. So we went to try to find once there was a pilot of a Pukara, one of our, that was, and he managed to eject himself before his plane crashed. And so we were looking in the water for him. And in other moments when there was a sunken merchant ship, we were looking for corpses to get back to the place where we were, which was in the south of West Falklands, which is a post called Fox Bay. And finally, at the beginning of June, we were told to take helicopter fuel with us to Puerto Argentino or Port Stanley, the capital. And so that was our last operation. And in Argentina, the people who believe in the glorious story of the war, we are heroes to these people because we managed to get through between the British fleet and Darwin, which was already taken by the British, and we went through the middle. Nobody thought that we would make it through. There was news that the Penelope had sunk and we were all dead. Fortunately, that news arrived in the house of my parents before the letter in which I told them they had been sent to the Penelope. If not, they would be sure I was dead. And so we finally, the last days of the war, I went back to the capital and I was there for the surrender. The worst nightmares I've had, less so now, but the first, I would say, 10 years after the war, I had permanent nightmares. And they were about the dead and wounded from the mountains that I had seen, I was sent to another ship that took the wounded to the hospital vessel. And that was by far the worst. I saw the effect of the army war in the mountains and the wounded at the day. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The tale of the Penelope and that, like you say, perceived as a heroic and a risky journey to transport helicopter fuel. Am I right in thinking that that was through the British naval blockade? That must have been such a harrowing and tense, terrifying experience. Was it the fact that you were on such a small wooden vessel that meant you were able to do that, able to slip by and potentially even slip under the radar? We were undetected. We had no radar. We had no radio. Yes, we were undetected. The story of my book finishes with another German mad adventurer, Bernd Buchner, who was an admirer of Gunter Pluchow, and he bought the Penelope in 2006 and took it back to Hamburg. It's such a beloved ship for the Falkland Islanders that this is the stamp in which they honored these small islands. You know, they're stamp collectors like the stamps of these small islands. So I saw the original art of this. The artist is the husband and now the widower of the historian, of the leader of the Falkland archives, Jane Cameron, whom I deeply admire and and to whom I dedicate the English version of the book. She was extremely helpful and a great person who understood the nature and the identity of the Falkland Islanders and their wish and also the suffering of the Argentine soldiers who were sent there. And many died and many more returned, wounded, mentally deranged. It's all, now 40 years after that, it's almost as many Argentine veterans who committed suicide as the number of soldiers who were killed. So for me, my fight is not, I mean, should say that as an Argentine, I would like that someday in a peaceful way, the islands may belong to Argentina. But I'm, I really think that justice is not about land ownership, but about people. So it is, for me, making justice to the Falkland Island experience in Argentina is treating my comrades I suppose I'm okay. I'm not more mad than I would be otherwise. But really, war veterans everywhere are vulnerable. And 10 years ago, for the 30th anniversary, I was contacted by The Guardian. And I was asked to do something similar to this conversation, which is, I think you can find it in The Guardian archives, with Ted McNally, who was a British veteran. And I told him, because that is what I believe, because I knew my side. And we were, many of my comrades who went back, especially the ones who fought in the the mud and the mountains, who had no preparation. You asked me before about how prepared we were. I was given a FAL rifle. I never, ever practiced with it. My enemy had fought in Northern Ireland, and they had winter practice in Norway and I was just a kid with a rifle and I just didn't know how to use it and I mean I didn't have to use it but the ones who did and I said you know maybe some of the frustration and the anger and the mental problems are because we lost the war 
and he had post-war disorder. And he said, no, many veterans from Britain also committed suicide, also are in a bad situation. He said, I dug a hole in my garden waiting for the enemy. He said, General Galtieri lost the war. Margaret Thatcher won the war. But you and I, we both lost. And it must have been a particularly difficult experience, Roberto, like you say, going back to Stanley and seeing the impact it had on your fellow troops, your fellow countrymen, and being a soldier that has to surrender in war. Could you take us through what that experience was like? Because I was not particularly nationalistic, I, when I realized that there would not be what General Galtieri had promised, that we would fight to the last man, but the General Menendez, who was the commander in the islands, decided to surrender. For me, it was relief that we would not all be killed. But I know that when the Argentine flag was taken down and then the British came and they put the Union Jack up, they cried because it was a humiliation to the country. And I think that has drawn me to what I am. I suppose that if I have a noun attached to me, it is journalist, it is reporter, it is writer. And then the adjective is Argentine because I care about people. But I mean, for me, it was a shock because of how I learned what had happened during the last days and hours of the wars. It was carnage. And the Navy commander lent me to Captain Brown, who was in charge of prisoners. I went with him for three or four days as his translator to all the fields, especially the airport and the other places where the prisoners were, because there were 10,000 prisoners and 10,000 guards who would not speak the same language. The whole operation of getting all of us into the ferries where the British troops had come and taking us to the continent. Still, there was no agreement to have these British ships go into an Argentine port, so they were shipped to Uruguay. Many of my combats went in the Canberra to Uruguay. I went in the Norland, which usually goes from Aberdeen to Holland. (laughs) We slept where they have the cars. It's a ferry. And so we went to a place in Argentine Patagonia, Puerto Madre. Also in the ship, I was used as a translator. And I had a very good cup of tea with the captain of the Norland, because he wanted me to tell him what the war had been like for us. And I wanted to know his experience and what he felt, what he thought. These ferries, they could be attacked. Several British ships had been attacked and sunk. So really, I think that was the beginning of my vocation. I wanted to tell the story of people unlike myself and tell my readers how it was like to be somebody different. I still believe that journalism can do something for the cause of peace in the world, especially today. But really for me, I felt when I went back, the beginning of the post-war period was a period of deep anger for me. The way in which my neighbors had taken the war as a football match. We're winning, we sunk the invincible. And that was the same time as the 1982 World Cup. About two nights before the end of the war, we were listening to a match in the World Cup in Spain of Argentina, I think, against Belgium, which was completely mad. But really, the way in which people were just going out into the streets and restaurants and having a happy time and not suffering with and for us was very, very hard. I had been an avid reader of before the war and before I had any idea that I would be sent into a war against Great Britain. I'm an avid reader of poetry, and I still have here all of the collected poems of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and Robert Graves. And there's a poem by Sassoon in which he dreams that he comes back and they parading 
and the people are cheering and they come back from the First World War and everybody is with flags and then they stop and then half of them the knee on foot and they put the rifles in order and they kill them. It's interesting hearing you talk about the legacies of the war directly after and the anger that it left you with personally. If we were to look at the perceptions of the Falklands War today in Argentina, how could we best describe it? What are the legacies of the war there today? I suppose it happens with every war that has left an impact in the public imagination. I have been reading some scholarly papers about the legacy of the First World War, the Second World War in all the countries that participated in it. And every big anniversary, this year is the 40th anniversary of that war, the, the meaning of the war has to do with what is happening today. I would say that Argentina is in a sorry state. It's an economic crisis. Half the country believes that the current government crooks and will take them to ruin. The other half believes that the previous government is. And it's really a question of more of hatred and really belligerence in politics. So there's one aspect of the war that is disturbing to me that it was because it was also, and for me very much so, the criminal adventure of a dictatorship in which, I mean, I was unable to vote or to participate in any way, but I was sent to fight in a war. But that is, as I said before, now it's seen as something that unites us, dream of having a united country with what a poet has called the lost daughter, la hermanita perdida. It's like there's something lacking, like a limb, that we will not be complete until the Malvinas are ours and we will have everything that belongs to us. I feel that many of my comrades who follow this line and that they think that the cause of Malvinas, they even coined a verb, Malvinizar, to Malvinize, which is not to forget that there is a quest for the completeness and the glory of the fatherland against the pirates, which is you. <laughs> I've been called worse, Roberto. <laughs> <laughs> so now this has changed. This meant something in the 10th anniversary, the 20th, the 30th. And I think it's, of course, a long time has passed and it's different when most of the population has lived and has a, a living memory of it. Now, I think after 10, 20, 30 years, most people in Argentina were either adults or school children who were forced by the teachers to send letters to a soldier of the fatherland. I remember as a professor, I, I always said, ah, you probably remember the war when you were young and in the last 10 years, one of them says, Prof, no, no, we were not born. This war is like the Napoleonic Wars, like the First World War, like the Crusades. It's history. It's in the history books. It's not in our memory. So I think that that's bad because it's used by the ones who want to use it for political purpose, but not so much in the memory of others. What I care for is I feel that in a way I have a voice. People listen to me, people read me, I speak and, read and, and teach and write in two languages. So it's not for the cause of retaking the islands or for anything about me. But in a way, I feel that it's for my comrades not to be left alone. Still, one of the things I think that if we are going to use another anniversary of the war for something useful, it is for us. I started a few years ago because first they contacted me, four children of people who died in the war. Some were babies they did not know their fathers. One recently published a book about objects, the voice of things. And I asked one of the fine writer whose father committed suicide when she was four years old. He was a war veteran who the people around him thought he had left this behind. And his last exam at university to become an engineer, 
he failed and he went into the university bathroom and killed himself. And so Florencia wrote about him. And I think that there's something after 40 years, nobody has cared for the children of us veterans. I mean, some people don't want to understand why the father is so secret, doesn't want to talk about that or is grim. There's something, there's a cloud over many of those who have lived terrible things. It's terrible to have been killed when you are 18 or 19. And it's also terrible when you were forced to kill somebody and live with it. And so now I'm thinking of our children. But there is, of course, for the national government in Argentina, they have released plan of 40 patriotic ceremonies and celebrations and things because Argentina has passed from the time of the war, it was about 20-25% poverty. Now it's 50% now. So being patriotic is something that every government wants to stress, especially when the daily lives of people is not good. So I feel that that would be used in that way. And one of the things that are being done is to make the lives of the islanders miserable, forcing the friendly Latin American countries to allow ships from the islands into their ports and things like that. I believe that if we want them to want to be Argentine, we should be friendly. My grain of sand is my friendship with John Fowler, who translated my book, which is my experience of the war, not into British English or American English, but into Falklands English. And I wrote the epilogue of his memoir, of his war. And really, I think there are good and bad people on any side of any war. And in this particular war, there are people with an open and a closed mind on both sides. As you know, this is a program about probably the most intense as well as dramatic episodes in the lives of peoples and of individuals. Warfare is a disaster, a political, a moral, a philosophical disaster, but also a narrative wonder because lots of great stories come out of it. And I believe we can learn things about ourselves and the others. And I mean, I would never have known John Fowler did not mean that I was sent <laughs> to that war, which he calls extremely unnecessary in 1982. John's house was the brick house, like the good house of the three pigs. And so other friends and teachers of the school he headed were hiding in his house. But a British missile fell on his house. The only three British civilians who died in that conflict died in John's house. And he almost got killed. So that is the key to his story of the world and the fact that I'm able to talk to you now. These are things that I think are things that might help us understand something about human nature through the extreme experience of war. So if we are to use the 40th anniversary of the Falklands or Malvinas war for something useful, it is to think of how we got there. Why is it that so many people in Britain loved the resolve and the ironness of the Iron Maiden and voted for Margaret Thatcher again after the war? This is maybe from something else, but I was waiting. We were here in the house. We were watching the series The Crown. And when the episode about the Falklands appeared, I thought it was very clever that the key to that episode was the working class guy who went into the quarters of the Queen to tell her what was going on in Britain really during the Thatcher years. And because that is, in a way, in this conventional war, the Argentine dictatorship and Margaret Thatcher were on opposite sides. But on the great war of the rich against the poor, which is the one I think is the great war of the 20th century, they were on the same side against the rights of common people for the interests of big business and the rich. I think we should remember that big war of Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and the Latin American dictatorships, which transformed the landscape of at least this continent into one of lesser and fewer rights 
for the people, more poverty and more gain for the greedy big business. That was the real war. If we concentrate on something like the Falklands War, this might sound a bit <laughs> Marxist, but I believe that old-fashioned 18th century war that was the Falklands War was an exception. In that time, 1982 was the height of the Cold War, and it had nothing to do with the Cold War. And it had to do with nationalistic wars like the ones of the fall of the Soviet Union, maybe. Well, Roberto, thank you so much for taking us through your personal history and presenting it, I think I can safely say, in such a human, balanced, detailed and individual way. Please tell us the title of your book and where we can buy it. I think it is in Amazon and it is called The Voyages of the Penelope, The Three Lives of a Legendary Wooden Vessel in the South Atlantic and Tierra del Fuego, translated from the Spanish by John Fowler. It's a small publishing company of books in Spanish, English, and German in Argentina that is called Sudpol. And for me, it was a wonderful thing that the war was a journey, writing the book was a journey, and working together with John Fowler on this translation is another journey. Well, Roberto, thank you so much for your time today and for taking us through this remarkable history. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.